Hey! You're listening to Talk of Shame, a Wamina production supported by our sponsor, BetterHelp. I'm your host, Alia Moro. I'm an Egyptian-born, London-raised freelance journalist and author of the best-selling non-fiction book, The Greater Freedom. Having felt the impacts of shame, or Arab, as Arabs like to call it, on many aspects of my life, I've become pretty obsessed with the concept and the question of how we can rid ourselves from it. Throughout the season, I dig deeper into shame with the help of some brilliant guests. Shame breeds shame, so we gotta talk about it. Shame. How do we set ourselves free from shame? Um, um, I think to rid yourself of shame. Before we can even free ourselves from shame, we first need to recognize and acknowledge what effect this shame has had on us. It depends on the type of shame that you have and the reason that you got it. Once we accept that we've internalized this judgment, and it's not an easy thing to do, but once we see shame as something that's not actually internal to us, we can then begin to see how to set ourselves free. Perhaps if it was an event imposed upon you, God forbid someone has trespassed your boundaries, whether it's physical or emotional boundaries and taught you that it was your fault. I think that type of shame lives within the body and needs to be let go through the body. Self-expression is so important in this process of overcoming shame. It's tough because we're always told we can't say certain things, but simply saying how we actually feel is this form of self-expression. And this simple act is a part of the healing process. Hypnotherapy really helps with this and talk therapy in general. Shame is also a internalized misbelief and to rid yourself of an internalized misbelief, I think that affirmations work really well. Recognizing that at our most purest and deepest level, we are enough and complete and whole, I think we can begin to start the process to freeing ourselves from shame being kind and being accepting and being very forgiving and just repeatedly doing that until it's in your mind to say that I accept myself. This is not something that I should be ashamed of. To truly free ourselves from such shame, we need to accept who we are and avoiding the pressures of society. Follow your gut instincts and reflect your actions to find your true self. But I'd also like to say that sometimes we do things that are not aligned with our personal values and that brings us shame so you need to know what your values are and whether or not you're living up to them unfortunately while shame is not something that we choose or have control over how we overcome it is and how we respond to it is i cannot believe that we're almost at the end of the season what in the hell we've explored so much over the last 10 episodes and obviously for this penultimate episode i wanted to get a bit more into how we can form our own moral compass and how we can finally free ourselves from shame i still have it 
But what I do is I just show up. I, I like try to really ask myself, Britana, what do you believe in? What makes you come alive? What makes you feel generative? And then you go and do it. And that doesn't mean that shame isn't going to exist, but it's exactly what you said. It's in the doing. That's Ratana. She's a Saudi-born, LA-based singer-songwriter and the creator of the upcoming series, Fucked and Blessed. I just love how sensual she is and how she kind of owns who she is. And she's one of my very favorite people to follow on Instagram. I thought she'd be the perfect person to speak to about this, even or actually especially because it's still something she's working through. In this week's episode, we talk about working through shame and the grief associated with that, forming our own values and more. Ratana kicks us off by telling us what she thinks about when she hears the word shame. Shame breeds shame. Let's talk about it. For me, shame means just like a giant barricade to authenticity. Um, It is the thing that is keeping us from being who we are meant to be in this world. I also want to just like start with a major disclaimer that I by no means have figured this out or have a formula. I am very much um, in, you know, the throes and the trenches of it all, figuring it out. So I don't have a diagnosis for anyone. No, I'm very much in the throes of it as well. And I think, I think for me, so much of what's been really helpful is, you know, the community, I think that exists of us Arab women, you know, in the diaspora and in the Middle East and, you know, women like you and I see your Instagrams and I'm just like, oh my God, yes. Like, it's just so empowering. And I think what's so difficult when it comes to, you know, Middle Eastern culture, and especially when it comes to women within that, there's very much this sort of aib and, you know, a lot of that is to do with our bodies and our sexualities. So it's just been so great to see all the work that you've been doing in particular to sort of reclaim that for yourself. I'd love to hear a little bit about what that sort of journey has been like for you. Yeah, um, it has been a wild roller coaster to say the least. You know, I was born and raised in Saudi Arabia. Um, I went to Saudi school, so especially at the time, it was a very religious curriculum. We had like six religion topics. Everything was segregated. You know, music was forbidden in public places. As a woman, you weren't allowed to use your voice out loud in any capacity. Like it was really um, things are opening up and, and, you know, gradually sort of changing now, but it was a fucking, it, it felt like a video game at times. And it was really confusing because... On the one hand, there's something really gorgeous that comes from religion. And uh, like I, for example, going to this very religious school, being segregated from men and boys, like I really, I really maintained my innocence for a very long time in the sense that like I knew what inherent worthiness meant. Like I knew that my worthiness was inherent. I knew what it was like to enjoy life and have fun without vices without needing anything but just friendship and and connection. I really knew the value of ritual. I knew how to hold myself and my energy sacred. Like that's incredible stuff that comes from sometimes being in a religious community. And of course, on the other hand, like in the privacy of my own room, I have always been an erotic being. And when I say erotic, I mean, I'm not talking about fishnets and stripper poles, although if that's what you're into, 
fucking great. I'm talking about eroticism in the sense of what makes you truly come alive? What connection do you have to your sexuality? Do you understand like this understanding that like when you see a flower blooming, that's erotic, that's sexual, that's like life becoming more of itself. As one of my teachers, her name is Alana Mehta says that. So in the privacy of my room, I was moving my body and my hips and touching myself and exploring my sexuality in a really beautiful way. And I never felt like that was wrong. I was never ashamed of it, but I really believed also that I was going to burn in hell. But for whatever reason, it's like, it's weird. Like, at least for me, I believed that I was going to go to hell, but I also wasn't ashamed of it. So that's bizarre. That is really bizarre, to be honest. Super bizarre. And I think there's a lot to unpack there. And I've been thinking about it, but we'll address it. But so this is just to show that from a very young age, like I started doing this stuff when I was six. From a very young age, I had this cognitive, sexual, spiritual dissonance, right? And, you know, I went to college in the States. I was still very much the same person. I went back, started working in Saudi, still the same person. And then I hit a point of deep depression because I wasn't fulfilled. Something, I wasn't listening to a part of myself. There was a part of myself that wasn't integrated And so I moved here to the States out of like these tiny whispers that just started to grow louder. How old were you at this point? I was 24 when I moved here. Like not young. (laughs) I mean, that's young. But in the West, we see these stories like these coming of age stories and they're fucking 16 when they're like, oh my God, I like I have to find myself or they're 17 or they're 18, not 24, 25, 26, 27. So I moved here, didn't fucking, I didn't know anyone, never written a song in my life, like totally clueless and just began the journey. And as I started to express myself, I naturally, again, am very primal in my movement. Sexuality is the place where I really feel myself. I feel God. Um, I feel nature. I feel my power. I feel the cycle of life. And I was stumbling through that as I first got here. Now I'm grounded in it. But that's when the shame started to come. When I started like really, really like become such a big part of my psyche was when it became public. Mm. So there's so much to the journey. But what I have to say is that it's always been a part of me. And I believe that our sexuality is always a part of us. We're born with it. There's, There's literally like we have footage of babies in the womb touching themselves and flooring themselves and like what looks like masturbation wow I didn't know that yeah I saw it on a TED talk I'm trying to remember where but google it you'll find it that's so interesting yeah and so it's really just been a lifelong journey for me of feeling like the worst fucking person in the world uh because of this sexuality uh, an erotic aliveness that I have and love and also being a religious person, a, a Saudi woman, a girl that loves her mother and her family. And it just reached a point where I was like, I can either continue this dissonance or I can start making content about it, which is the way that I like alchemize and process things. That's so interesting that you said that you felt more shame once you moved to LA. What do you think that was? Do you think that was just because you just saw all these different ways of being? 
I think it's just because I started pub. I started practicing my uh, my my sexuality and my aliveness in public and my movement and all these things in public. Before that, I had done it in the privacy of my own room. So when it's just me and me. I don't think it's shameful. I fucking love it. I under I feel the power. I feel the peace. I feel the connection. But then I start doing it in public, and then culturally, people start commenting. Family stuff starts getting integrated. You know, everyone has judgments about it. So that's what made it incredibly difficult. Of course, I think there's another layer of how I don't think that the West is sexually liberated at all, even though I thought that that I would come here and I I thought I'm going to move to America and when I move here khalas I will understand they're going to show me like they're so liberated <laughs> here but no no they're not they're not there's so many double standards and I think that that's something that I've really been realizing more and more and also very interestingly and I'm sure you know this that you know the Arab world and a lot of the sort of other countries that the West colonized were actually very sexually open oh, and all of this stuff. Yeah. And then the West kind of came with their colonialist ideas and shamed us for the way that we were. They left, moved on from the Victorian era in a way. And then we're like, wait, what are you guys doing still there? You know, but it was like, that was you. You did this. You're the ones who made us feel ashamed. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't have the authority to really speak on Islam as a religion, but Islam from the way that I have now integrated it is a very sex positive religion. There's a lot of beautiful sensuality and eroticism in it. It's super alive. And yeah, Arabs have been like really getting down. It was so interesting what you said, though, as well, about how we come of age so much later in our culture, which I think is so true. And I feel like a lot of that is because we are indebted almost to our families and, you know, very much children for, for very long. It becomes really difficult, I think, to sort of form our own values away from what our families or our communities expect from us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that was very much my experience. Um, I think especially for a lot of us, our, our relationship to our mothers are really, really, really complicated. You know, for me, that was a really big one. It felt like, you know, I have this song about my mother and it's called I'm Still You, but it says like every step I take to me depends on letting go of you. And that's powerful. Becoming myself really required me what felt like abandoning my mother, what felt like betraying my mother, mm. what felt like betraying my whole culture and my father. But like, for me, the mother wound is really, really big and heavy. But absolutely, you know, we grow up, we have which is like, you know, appeasing your parents and giving them peace of mind is the most important thing that you can do. And I really believe that it's so fucking necessary. And it's so important. And I think that we are wrong to believe that it can come at the cost of compromising yourself and compromising your joy and your well-being. Yeah. I think the reason that so much of why it's so difficult for us is because culture and religion are so deeply intertwined for us. You know, we say appeasing your parents and pleasing them. This has become almost like religious scripture. Mm. And there's no negotiation about it. <laughs> and it's like, yes, we know that Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the Prophet said that, but 
that doesn't mean that that's black and white. Like everything is here to be negotiated and just questioned. So I really fucking struggled with that. It took me 24 years to even think that I had the right to like pursue my own path. Mm. I think what's so powerful about that is this feeling of like having to abandon our mothers and the way that they think that we should be. And what I've found is actually since I've embarked on this journey of trying to form my own values and free myself of shame in the ways that I've felt to impact me, it's had such a positive impact on both my relationship with my mother, but also on her relationship with herself. Mm-hmm. Because I remember she read my book and she called me and she was like crying and she was like, oh my God, like, mm-hmm. I think I'm a feminist too. And, you know, you sort of put words to all these things, which I hadn't even realized, but have been dictating my life. And I've noticed that she's a lot less controlled by shame now too Mm. and it's almost like the work that we do on ourselves frees our moms if they're willing you know and frees other people as well like there's kind of the domino effect to it I think yeah absolutely I mean I really really truly believe that healing is is never it's like it's not a one-way thing you heal yourself and as a result you heal those around you and others and you know, I, I'm sure there are people listening and I can really relate and speak to this experience is that what makes this so difficult and I think what makes it so hard for so many of us, Arab or Muslim women or anyone that comes from that region, what makes it so hard to follow your truth and embrace it when it goes against your family or mother's values is that a lot of times you don't get that reaction. Mm. You know, you get the reaction of being disowned or ejected or punished and that is so incredibly hard and I can see so many people quitting at that point and feeling like well I'm not fucking healing anyone I'm only hurting people yeah and that's where I think this understanding of like that we are all sovereign beings yes we are interconnected but we are also all individuals is really really important to understand you know I used to believe that I had the power to make my mother sick or like to break my mom what a burden to carry. I think so many of us carry that. Yeah. It's so fucking heavy. And I remember one of my, a woman that was kind of a mentor of mine, she was like, you have so much ego. Oh, you think you're God? <laughs> like you, th- you think you can break your mother. And it's like, that's a choice that your mother makes. And that's, that was, it took me like a decade, literally, to wrap my head around that understanding that Mm. you can never actually make someone be in suffering. It is a choice for them to suffer. Mm. And that's like, just fucking difficult, man, to really understand that. Yeah, well, it's really difficult to, you know, we're really not raised to put ourselves or our well-being ahead of those of others, you know? Let's pause the conversation here for some words from our sponsor, BetterHelp. The effects of shame culture can run deep and are often ignored. It can affect our mental health and self-image, and as we take care of our mental health and well-being, it's important to process our experiences and traumas. BetterHelp makes this easy and accessible by assessing your unique needs and matching you to one of their licensed professional therapists in less than 48 hours. You can message your counselor anytime and get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions from the comfort and safety of your own home and skip the uncomfortable waiting rooms of traditional therapy. 
As a talk of shame listener, you get 10% off your first month with BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P. Use promo code TALKOFSHAME and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Back to the conversation. Tell me a bit about what, like, how, like, what, what, did you go to therapy? Do you go to therapy? Like, what are the kind of things that you've done in order to unpick some of this stuff for yourself? So I, I'm not currently in therapy. I'd love to, but I can't currently afford it. But I have been in all sorts of different therapy. Um, I've been in talk therapy. I also really, really credit my relationship to doing mushrooms under like a therapist's supervision. A lot of my unfolding and a lot of my undoing my shame. And, and how do you think taking psychedelics helped? Like, what did it do? Essentially what a psychedelic does, it's like I become Rutana, but without all of the layers of fear and doubt and shame. It's like your innermost desires and impulses and beliefs and power and hurts and pains. It's all just like it's you're just you become you go back to your primal instinct. You become more animal. There's less societal, spiritual, uh, religious conditioning. There's no conditioning. Mm-hmm. And so you experience yourself without the conditioning. And that is so goddamn liberating. It's fascinating how like deeply rooted this stuff is. Like it, so much of it is just in our subconscious that we don't even realize. Yeah. Because for me, I, what I always found really strange is that my mom obviously did have her things that she told me about how I should be and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But my family are really not religious. It was so almost like by osmosis that I feel that I had kind of adopted these mentalities. And what I found really interesting is that as I got older, I started to feel the shame play out more in my decision making, especially when it came to sex. And what Mm. really helped me was going to hypnotherapy because I felt like that sort of, I guess, similarly, perhaps removed all the layers and it kind of just let me get straight into the subconscious. And I remembered things that I had been told or whatever when I was like five years old or things that I had seen that my conscious mind had no idea about, but my subconscious had kept and like held on to. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, so much of it lives in our subconscious. And it's not only that, it's like, even if your family isn't religious, like we're talking about generations here. You know, one of the biggest things that I realized through psychedelics is the majority of my shame is actually not mine. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not mine. And so I did a lot of purging in those sessions, whether that was actually like throwing up or energetically throwing it up. And it's like, acknowledging that this is not mine. Mm. I release it. I mean, this has been going on for millennia. You know, this doesn't have to be like, oh, my family isn't religious. I don't understand why I feel so much shame. Like they've been burning witches that like, they're not even witches. The witches were women. They were simply women that used herbs. And that did stuff that the society thought was wrong or not. Totally. There are women that were sexual, liberated, asked for their rights. And so they named it like, this shit is so embedded in us. Um, So psychedelics, I think another big thing that really helped for me, obviously as an artist, and if anyone is an artist or writer or anything, um, the moment that I started to really, I think, get 
get really like get jiggy with it on the <laughs> process of like re- releasing shame was when I said, fuck it. I'm going to write music and write a show about the things that I am terrified to talk about, mm. which is death and sex and my mother. So I think for every artist listening, it's like it's your job to ask yourself the question of what is the thing that if everybody knew I would like, I just want to go and kill myself. Mm. That's the thing that you should be writing about. That's usually where shame lives. So go there. Even if you're not ready to show it to people, create from that place, even if it's just for you. That was, to me, one of the most liberating things that I ever did is I started to create my art from that place of shame. And then another thing, this isn't really a tool, but it's a lesson that I learned that I wish somebody told me, which is, I think that for us, we really need to get familiar with grief and the cycle of grief, the stages of grief, and understand that, unfortunately, for so many of us, getting rid of shame requires losing people, places, and things. Wow. And if you're not prepared to grieve, and if you're not prepared to contend with loss, then you will stay in that cycle of shame. And it's it's not fair, and there shouldn't have to be a cost, but there is for so many of us. And so for me, understanding what it means to grieve and the stages of grief and, and understanding that, that things must die in order for other things to live has been yani, life-changing for sure. Well, I guess you even have to let go of versions of yourself. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Yes. Let that let that die. And, it, you know, we have this belief that staying the same is honorable and being the same person forever is the way to go. And it's like, no, no. You know, Octavia Butler tells us all the time, like God has changed. Change is the only thing that is real. Well, like Jay-Z said, like I worked this hard to stay the same. No way. Totally. No (laughs) way. I love that. I didn't know that Jay-Z said that, but yeah. Yeah, it's in one of his songs. Um, That must have been really hard, though. Like my book was very much that for me. It was very much me being like, what are all the things that I'm afraid of? Okay, let's do this. And it's difficult to do. I saw on Instagram you wrote, I have been frozen as an artist for years, afraid of the loss that comes with being me. Yeah. How did it feel, I guess, when you started to really sort of tap into that space? What was the response like? What did that do for you as well? It felt so many things. It felt so heartbreaking and terrible because the loss that I knew would happen came. And that's a feeling that is, I felt at times like I. it feels, it's this illogical feeling that I'm not going to survive, that I'm going to die. Mm. I knew that I wasn't actually going to die, but I think it's a very primal bodily Thing that's beyond my intellectual comprehension that kind of feels like I've been ejected from a tribe in the desert and I don't have any weapons to fend for myself or to kill prey or to eat. You know what I mean? It's like, it felt like that. Mm. And it was really sad. It was just like deep grief. It was the death of my place in so many, you know, in the eyes of family and the eyes of my culture. And it's like, you just don't feel like you belong And it's not like I feel like I belong in America either. And so it's heartbreaking. And 
all throughout that, there was still this sense of, I'm going to be okay. Like, keep going. You're going to be okay. Keep going. And the reason I think that was there is because I've cultivated a relationship with my just inner being and my intuition, which has taken so long. But also because I really believe that when you when you send the signal out of who you truly are, it's like you're like a wolf calling in in the night. Mm. And for me, what happened was like I sent the signal out. I did my show. I started to release my art. I started to talk about the things that were really true to me. And all of these different women from all around the world were like, come, come, like, come into my bosom. I see you. I hear you. I've got you. And so I now have this network of women and mothers and grandmothers that I never would have fucking found mm. had I not sent the signal of who I was that are just like me. Oh, my God. I have goosebumps. Literally, you saying that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it really, like, I always see this visual of, like, a wolf calling out in the night. And for a while, no one's there, by the way. Like, <laughs> that's also a thing. It's like, you have to be willing to go through this phase where there's nothing around you and everyone's gone. Mm. And it feels like, fuck, man, I, I fucked up. But you keep sending the call out. And then like all these wolves from all around the world were just like howling back. And I, I would not have found them had I, had I not sent the signal. Mm. Oh, that's so beautiful. Like there's loss, like you said, but then there's what you gain. And that's so magical and so empowering, I think. I mean, tribe, like true tribe, people that that see all of you and want all of you and accept you for who you truly are. Mm. That's where God is. That's where God is. You know, that's where the sacred lives. That's the stuff. Mm. And for so many of us, you know, our families can't do that. And that doesn't mean that they don't love us. But it also means that, you know, <laughs> if they didn't love who you truly were, then you never really fully had them because it wasn't you. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. No, and, and being you trumps it all because otherwise, what are we doing with our one lives on this earth? We're just trying to please other people all the time. Yeah. And I think that for our generation and for people like you and me, it's like, I also understand, like, it's not just enough for me to just, I just want to be myself. And I found all these women and here's my tribe. I'm like, no, man, I love my fucking family. I love my culture. So I think there's a big, I don't even like to call it a fight, but there's a lot of, we have a lot of work to do. Like I refuse to give up. Yeah. I refuse to give up. Well, it shouldn't have to be one or the other. Yes. I don't believe that. It, I mean, I come from a place that really believes it's one or the other. But I think part of my path and my journey is to say no. Well, I'm really excited for your fucked and blessed series. Honestly, like Thank you, you. I'm so, so looking forward to it. Can you tell us a little bit more about about that and, and, and the process of all of that? So Fucked and Blessed is essentially just like a straight to camera comedy educational series where I talk about sexuality, body liberation, consent, all these different things. And um, it really came from everything that we're talking about. I started to learn all these incredible things about pleasure and eroticism and our bodies that I I really had no idea about. Like, I didn't even know how many holes my body had. I didn't know <laughs> anything about my body. I wasn't taught anything at all. 
But even with all of this stuff, even with me being on stage and all these things, I was still fighting an inner battle of deep shame and confusion of like, is this wrong? Am I the worst person in the world? And then I go on stage and I'm like, oh, this is the most beautiful, powerful thing. So Fucked and Blessed was another thing that I made as a way to remove that inner battle and make a decision about what I truly believed and create content around it and put it out there. For me, that's the healthiest way to really get in line with my true values and beliefs. I love what you said of like, you feel the shame, but you do it anyway, because it's like, you don't, you don't have to be shameless in order to explore these things. Like it's almost like in the doing that you close that gap. Yes, absolutely. Like we said in the beginning of this, like I am still, I still have it. But what I do is I just show up. I, I like try to really ask myself, Ritana, what do you believe in? What mm-hmm. makes you come alive? What makes you feel generative? And then you go and do it. And that doesn't mean that shame isn't going to exist, but it's exactly what you said. It's in the doing. Do you think it's possible to ever like feel no, to just completely be shameless? <laughs> um, I think that for me personally, I don't know if that will ever exist, but I will tell you that shame has become a friend versus an enemy. It's become a teacher. And I don't think anything ever really goes away. I don't think grief goes away. I don't think insecurity goes away. I don't think anxiety goes away. I think what happens is we take it out of the dark and we look at it and we face it and we Mm. talk to it and we breathe with it and we integrate it. Once you start to really do that practice, it just shows up less and less. Mm. And then when it does show up, it doesn't take you down for months. It'll take you down for a day. And then that day turns into a couple of hours. And then that couple of hours turns into a 10-minute meditation session. Do you know what I mean? Like, it never really goes away. But you become more equipped to dealing with it. And it's not this big fucking terrifying monster anymore. That could literally paralyzes you. That could literally, literally paralyzes yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's like, yeah, working harnessing it as well perhaps and sort of seeing where you know where the bruises are and where where there's work to be done and where the blocks are yeah and I think you know somatic experiencing is is really one of the most profound ways and it's just like if anybody can afford to do or find you know some sliding scale type of somatic practice which is essentially just identifying where the feeling is in your body and what I learned from Adrian Marie Brown and a collective called Generative Somatics, they say like healing is not about feeling good. Mm. I think a lot of us feel that like, you know, when we meditate or whatever the goal is to feel good, they say healing is not about feeling good. Healing is about feeling more. Mm. Healing is about learning how to feel. I think a lot of people can feel super overwhelmed by beginning this process. And it's like, what do I do? What technique? It's like, dude, literally what it will change your life to just identify where you feel the shame in your body and just fucking feel it Mm -hmm. just feel it go in like go in breathe with it you're not gonna die we all I think we're so afraid of feeling our feelings because we think if we feel it it's never gonna end it's gonna take us over or whatever there's always a soft padding at the end of that fall so just feeling it is a healing mechanism yeah Brene Brown speaks a lot about how like will essentially do anything to not feel shame. Like we'll do anything. We'll be angry. We'll be sad. We'll be anything that's just not shame. 
So I think that's such good advice to like look in and just allow yourself to feel it because what's the worst that can happen? Literally nothing. Like you maybe you'll just be you'll have a really good cry and that that's not even bad. It's like a beautiful release. Mm. And the thing about shame is that it's oftentimes most of the time it's never yours. It's like, ask yourself, like, whose voice is this? Oftentimes it's a parent or a bully or a teacher. It's not your voice. Mm. It's like a saboteur in your psyche. Whose voice is this? Whose voice is this? You can literally go down a deep rabbit hole with that one. (laughs) Yeah, I've actually been doing that and I've been... All sorts of voices and none of them are mine. None of them are yours. You've got you. You love you. That's the truth of Mm. us. We are love. Like, we really love ourselves. We've just, you know, because of fucking capitalism and patriarchy and capitalism, I can't think capitalism enough. Like, capitalism really needs us to hate ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We really need us to hate ourselves. We wouldn't buy things otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, for real. We wouldn't be on the hamster wheel of like, must be doing this nine to five, must, 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 if capitalism didn't exist. We're buying into the big lie of we are not enough in scarcity. Mm -hmm. And that's what keeps this world running. And I think that's why, again, I think Brene Brown says this, that's why it's so important to feel empathy for ourselves and self-compassion for ourselves. She literally says, shame can't survive empathy. Yeah, I love that. Like shame really can't survive with empathy. It just can't because like we said, it's like shame is like there's something wrong with you. There's no empathy in that. There's no discussion in that. There's no curiosity in that. Mm. But then once empathy is, is, it's like, well, tell me why you did that. You know, I don't understand. It really scares me. Like what's going on there? You're giving, you're telling this person you are not inherently flawed. Yeah. And I think people hear empathy and they think that's like, oh, I love you. You're so amazing. Empathy can be as simple as being curious. Yeah. And you can still be really turned off and weirded out and grossed out. But just why did you do that? It's like humanizing it. Humanizing it. That's empathy, too. You know, Mm -hmm. for religious people listening, I think that we've completely forgotten about the concept of ijtihad in Islam. We have something called ijtihad, which essentially means the practice of, you know, you absorb the teachings of the Quran or the Hadith or whatever else, but then it's your job to sit with yourself and to sit with the purest version of your heart Mm. and for you to decide between you and your interpersonal relationship with God, the universe, whatever it is, what is true to you? How does this resonate with you? What is in alignment with you? And we've completely abandoned that practice. Yeah. And beyond religion as well, like even just culturally, I think like we were saying earlier, like what are the cultural norms and what do you think is right? You know, what do you, what agrees with you? What sits well with you? What fits into your moral compass? Because at the end of the day, that's what matters, I think. Absolutely. This is my whole journey. It's my music. It's fucking blessed. Like I really believe that one of the most powerful ways to control people is to disconnect them from their bodies because these bodies are the only vessels that we have to feel our intuition, to feel our power, to feel our feelings, to communicate with the divine, to commune with nature. When you are not in a relationship with your body and the feelings in your body, then you're just not in relationship with anything. Mm. And that allows for all of the systems to infiltrate you and say, here, 
Here's the moral compass. You need not think or feel. We have the answers. Oh my God, I could literally speak to you for hours. I'm like, I know. Tell me more. Tell me more about how the hell we can move past this, honestly. I think we're doing it. I think we're doing it. And I think we can't do it all at once. I think for those of us that, you know, communicate our truth through speech and writing, like it's just, it's our jobs to continue to write from the most honest and truthful place possible. And that's all we can do. And also it's our job to, be very honest about the fact that like we're fucking figuring it out too <laughs> you know i want that liberation and and aliveness for every woman or female identifying being i mean i want it for everybody but especially for us <laughs> we've been trampled on for a long long time totally Ratana, thank you so much. It's literally been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you, Habibti. The pleasure is all mine. Bye. I so enjoyed chatting with Ratana, and I hope you guys enjoyed listening and that there were some takeaways there. I think for me, one of the things that really stuck out was the grief that she spoke about in terms of, you know, the grief and the loss that comes with becoming who you are, ultimately. I don't think we often talk enough about that, actually. You know, there's so much positive terms associated with growth and healing and fuck everyone. And yeah, there is so much positivity and there is so much greatness in that. But there's loss too. Loss of people, loss of our ideas of self, loss of a lot of things. I think what also really stuck out to me was the importance of figuring out whose voice the shame is. I think realizing that most of the time that voice is not actually yours is really, really freeing in and of itself, or at least something that you can look at objectively and decide what you want to do with. Next week, we've got a bonus episode with Hey Sue from our sponsor, BetterHelp, who we heard from earlier in the season. We'll be talking about cultural differences and she'll be giving us some tips on how we can become more resilient to shame. Here's a snippet from next week's conversation. You know, when you feel like you're the only one that's going through something, that's when you start inflicting this idea that something is deeply wrong with you. But if you know that others are experiencing this too or others have been in your shoes, it's suddenly like, I'm just a normal person. And that helps with our sense of self-esteem and self-worth. I'm Alia Moro, and you've been listening to Talk of Shame, a Wemina production supported by our sponsor, BetterHelp. Sound designed by the talented Nicholas Alexander. Special thanks to Wemina producers Amira Ahmed, Elisa Friha, and Rhythma Ekinayaki. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, download, and review. It really does help get the word out there. Talk to you next week.